I have to say that of all the books of the Old Testament, I personally, I find the book of Ruth the most enjoyable to read. It's just a delight. Uh, to my thinking, it's the easiest book in the Bible to appreciate and enjoy on a literary level, on a story level. The events it describes are historical, but as a short story, it's a masterpiece. The characters of Ruth and Boaz, they're deep, aren't they? I mean, they're not just cardboard cutouts. Uh, they have personality. As readers, we like them. And, and let's admit it, we want to see the two of them get together. We're all sentimental romantics at heart. But as Christians, we need to be very careful that the literary elements of Scripture don't serve as a snare. They mustn't distract us from the biblical instruction the book of Ruth offers. This book, just as much as Romans or Hebrews, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So then, here's the question. How are Christians to read the book of Ruth? How does God want his new covenant people to read and apply this portion of his holy word? Well, if we're reading Ruth in the order it's placed in our Bibles, then we've just slogged through Joshua and Judges, two of the most difficult books in the Old Testament canon. Holy Wars, genocide, gang rape, a concubine chopped up into little pieces. And, and now we happen upon this, this, this sweet romantic interlude. It's like finding a piece of chocolate and a plateful of Brussels sprouts. We're like, oh, the book of Ruth is excellent. But if, you're, if we're reading this book properly, the way that God intends, one of the teachings that we take away must be, one of the teachings is that all the calamities and sorrows of life are under God's sovereign sway. And so we must act accordingly. We respond appropriately as Bible-believing Christians ought to respond. When God sovereignly ordains his children be afflicted with suffering, trial, loss, sickness, bereavement, personal devastation, <clears throat> we must allow no room for bitterness in our hearts or accusation or unbelief towards God. As I prayed just a while ago, that's supposed to be a, a, just a fundamental basic of Christian life and practice, but sadly it's not. And I point fingers at myself first. And so the book of Ruth serves as a very helpful corrective. As we'll see, Naomi responds with less than biblical faith to God-ordained calamity. She serves as a negative example to us. We can learn, brothers and sisters, from Naomi's uh, sin and her unbelief. But the book of Ruth also shows us that all history, even its darkest hours, serves to magnify the glory of God's grace. God is sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign. Our Lord does as he pleases in this world to affect his good and perfect purposes, purposes that we're not always privy to. Purposes that we don't always understand. And many, many of our Lord's divine purposes come through suffering. They come through evil. But there's more. In surprising ways, 1,000 years before Jesus Christ, the book of Ruth glorifies his saving work on the cross. Ruth it's about the work of God 
in the darkest of times to prepare the world for the glories of Jesus Christ. You see, the painful events related in this book are part of a salvation historical trajectory which lead directly to Jesus Christ, our Savior from sin. But not one person in this story has any idea that these devastating events are pivotal are pivotal for the accomplishment of their own eternal salvation. They don't have a clue. And Lord willing, over the next four Sundays, we'll see how this unfolds. So if you look at your bulletin at our first point, verses 1 through 16, bitterness. Bitterness begins, yet God is sovereign. Naomi is left without a husband or sons in the land of Moab. Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, that is just a pile of information in just one verse. Uh, We're told here that the story of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. That's a reference to a 400-year period in the nation of Israel from about 1400 B.C. to 1000 B.C. So let's put this into some historical context because those just sound like numbers, right? About 1000 years before this story, God entered into covenant with Abraham. Then we have Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Abraham's descendants then live in Egypt for 400 years, most of those years as slaves. But then God delivers his people from Egypt by his servant Moses. He enters into covenant with the nation at Mount Sinai, followed by 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. That constitutes basically the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then in the book of Joshua, the next book, the Israelites enter into the land of Canaan, the promised land under uh, Moses' successor, Joshua. And for the next 400 years, there is no king. Judges 21, 25, it's this refrain we keep hearing over again. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. This was a dark time in Israel's history. There is much sin and rebellion and apostasy in the land. This is a time of turning away from God and the covenant stipulations that God entered into with the nation at Mount Sinai, turning away. And we see the the same gloomy pattern happening over and over. The people sin. God sends military enemies against them. The people cry out for help. And God mercifully raises up civil and military leaders, people called judges, to deliver them. That's the pattern for 400 years. This is just this kind of endless cycle. Um, So for our timeline, that would be from 1623 to 2023. Think about that, right? Basically, from the time that the pilgrims arrived in the New World on the Mayflower till right now. That is a long time. So, from all outward appearances, God's purposes for righteousness and glory in Israel have failed. These are God's chosen people. He's delivered them from Egypt. These same people are the inheritors of the promises that God entered into with the patriarch Abraham. They're the only people on earth in covenant relationship with the Almighty God. 
And it's through this nation that God has blessed, has promised all the nations of the world will be blessed. But ever since taking possession of Canaan, it's been one long, dark cycle of apostasy and war and temporal judgments for breaking covenant with Yahweh for 400 years. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. But the sovereign God is actually at work doing a thousand things only he can see preparing the way for King Jesus. Look at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem, which ironically means house of bread, in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So picture in your mind the Dead Sea, or you can look at the map in your Bibles on page 2 before Genesis 1. But uh, this family is located in Bethlehem on the northwest side of the Dead Sea. So this is the Dead Sea. They're up here. And then they travel to the southeast side of the Dead Sea to be in Moab over on this side. Though we're not told the particular town that they're living in. Now, the Moabites have a dubious pedigree, to say the least. And as we'll soon see, for a woman in this culture not to have children, that was the greatest social stigma imaginable. Uh, And after God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, after rescuing Lot's family, if you recall that story, men were scarce in the region. And so Lot's daughters took matters into their own hands. Many of us know the sad story. They got their father roaring drunk and became pregnant by him. They gave birth to sons. The eldest daughter named her baby Moab, which sounds like the Hebrew from father, which is pretty disgusting. 800 years later, Israelites and Moabites are not on friendly terms. Uh, Moab was a pagan land with foreign gods, which means going to Moab to escape famine was playing with fire if you're an Israelite. Uh, And Elimelech's peers would not have viewed this as being a godly decision. They would be thinking, Elimelech, you're going to remove yourself and your family from the, from the, the tabernacling presence of God and from his covenant people and the land that he promised our father Abraham, and you're going to go live in Moab? Although, really, I mean, the, the, the spirituality of Israel at this point was at such a low ebb, perhaps nobody cared. You know, they should have cared. Verse 2. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, notice how the author has twice, in just two verses, and in the opening verses at that, told us the origin of this family. That's an important clue. This family isn't just from Judah, but from Bethlehem in Judah. And they're not just residents of Bethlehem. They belong to a specific clan. They're Ephrathites. And in the period in which the story is told, that would trigger a connection in the mind of the hearers. Let me just give you an example of this, all right? Guys, I want you to shout out the first person you think of when I mention this geographical region, okay? Transylvania. Excellent. Count Dracula. Everybody, that's our only association with that region of the world. 
And in the mind of Ruth's original audience, when the author writes an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in Judah, they would think of the most famous of them all, David, the son of Jesse. 1 Samuel 17, 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. 1 Samuel 17, 12. But when the events of this book take place, King David isn't born yet. Ruth is the story of how King David is born. Ruth is David's great-grandmother. That's the key to everything. So, right from the start of the book, we all need to be thinking, King David, King David. Verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. As some of you know, I'm a bit of a film buff. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert, though if I had the time, I would love to be. But uh, the, the films and the directors I know best are American. Uh, I love American cinema from like 1940 through 1970s. And uh, however, my knowledge of international cinema is pretty paltry in comparison. Uh, but about 15 years ago, I'm going to sound very geeky here, but about 15 years ago, I discovered a Japanese director whose films really resonate with me. In my opinion, he's one of the greats. Uh, the writer-director, Yasujiro Ozu. And, and so after being blown away by the first movie of his that I saw called Tokyo Story, uh, I began systematically working my way through his entire film catalog because that's the kind of geek I am. And so as I did so, I was just reminded over and over just how important cultural context is for understanding the intent of an author. There were all sorts of cultural references and clues that I was missing in these Japanese films. And so I rewatched entire sequences with the DVD's audio commentary playing over top because there were nuances to performances and character motivations that escaped me. Uh, the significance of what I was seeing had to be explained to me because I was unable to fuse my Canadian cultural horizon with the cultural horizon of post-war Japan. So I'd be asking myself, well, why is the father treating his unmarried daughter in that fashion? What are the familial obligations of children to parents in 1950s Japan? Why is that person dressed that way? Is that significant? And if we're going to understand the book of Ruth properly, then we're going to need to fuse our Canadian cultural horizon with 1100 BC ancient Near Eastern culture. So here's the first thing to appreciate. There was no worse fate in this culture than being an old widow without sons to look after you. So although Naomi's widowhood in verse 3 would be a terrible trial, it's, it's mitigated, it's lessened by the fact that she still has two sons. Things aren't as bad as they could be. Verse 4 they, the two sons, married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And of course, this was a culture where a young man didn't ask a young woman to be his bride. And if the parents didn't like it, well, that's just too bad. Love conquers all. Uh, the old fogies just have to lump it. Uh, never. You didn't elope in this culture. Parents arrange marriages, which means 
the widow Naomi would have been very involved in the marriage of her two sons. Now, marriage to Moabite women is nowhere forbidden in the law of Moses, but it was definitely discouraged because of their commitment to other gods like Molech, who required things like child sacrifice. Um, let me just read to you Deuteronomy 23, 3 to 6. No Amorite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor and Aram Naharam to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So, this isn't a wise move on Naomi's part. And notice, both marriages are marked by infertility. I think it's reasonable to conclude that there are covenantal implications for this behavior. Just as Yahweh withheld the rain and produced famine in Judah, so he has withheld fertility in this family. No children. 4b. After they had lived there in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, Naomi's bereavement is overwhelming. Life has become, literally, a woman's worst nightmare. This is as bad as it gets in this culture. She's an old widow who has lost her sons. She's facing old age in a foreign land without anybody to care for her. She lacks provision and protection. She can't just return to her father's house to live. She's too old. She can't remarry. She's too old. She can't support herself through some kind of craft or trade. By and large, women didn't have marketable skills. And another problem, a major problem, is that the family line of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband, has been annihilated. Now, we might be tempted to think, who gives a rip? Uh, she's got bigger problems to deal with. Where's her next meal coming from? But we, have to, we need to fuse our cultural horizon with Naomi's. Elimelech has no sons to pass on his name. This is a disaster. His family line has been wiped out forever. And we'll see the importance of this when we come to chapter 4. The line of Elimelech is one of the major undercurrents of this story. So keep it in your back pocket. So, Naomi's been through the ringer, right? A famine, a move to pagan Moab, the death of her husband, 10 years of childlessness for both of her daughters-in-law, the death of her sons, and now her remaining years will be characterized by loneliness, grief, poverty, a lack of protection, and old age. Naomi will always just be a hair's breadth away from starvation. Where's God? Where is this daughter of Abraham's covenant-keeping God, the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin? Where's Yahweh? Beloved, have these kinds of questions ever occurred to you when you've suffered? 
Where's God when I hurt badly? Isn't God a good God, a loving God? Isn't he all-powerful? He could stop these circumstances. If he's sovereign, even over evil, he could have ensured that these circumstances never began to begin with. If God is loving and good and omnipotent, then why has this befallen me? Of course, this topic, which is called theodicy, by the way, the vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil, it's called theodicy. This topic is related to a host of other themes, such as God's sovereignty, human responsibility, God's stance towards good and evil, the suffering of God's people, Christian maturity, the role of prayer, filling up the suffering of Christ, Christian discipline, new heavens, new earth, hell. It's a massive topic. And I won't even be able to scratch the surface in this sermon series, but what we all need to ask is do we have the theology under our belts right now, the biblical truth that will stop those noxious bubbles, those sinful bubbles of bitterness and rage against God from rising in our hearts when we're in a hospital room holding on to the hand of our dying friend, our dying spouse, our dying child. In those moments, the tears and the grief are going to be powerful. So what biblical understanding is going to stop us from looking at our existence through a selfish prism of my suffering, my pain, which turns day-to-day life into something we merely endure. Day-to-day life into something we merely endure. Loved ones, that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Now, this is something we're going to look at more in more detail, both in this sermon and in the next. But let me just ask, does our biblical understanding of God's loving sovereignty actually, functionally, inform our response to the suffering and evil that God brings into our life? Are we able to say, even though he slays me, yet I will trust him, as Job said. God will get me through this. Nothing on this earth is my treasure. He is my treasure. In the midst of our most severe trials, are we able to pray with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73. Brothers and sisters, we haven't come to it yet, but Naomi is a negative example for us. Just wait for it, you'll see. And we need to learn from her sin how not to respond to God's sovereign providence, his sovereign will. Look at verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord, Yahweh, had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So, Dead Sea, here's Moab, back up to Judah, Bethlehem. 
Point number two in our bulletins, bitterness compounded. Yet God is sovereign. Naomi and her daughters-in-law on the road to Judah. Verse seven, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. As if things weren't already hard and desperate enough, Naomi needs to return home alone. It's a hard decision to make, but it, will, it would be a very selfish act on her part to waste the lives of these two Moabite women who love her so much. They would do it. These two ladies would go with her. They would go with her back to Israel, but Naomi isn't going to let that happen. Why not? Because then they would be renouncing all hope of remarriage. They would be effectively consigning themselves to the life of a poor old widow. And they're not old. There's still hope for them. Both these women have been married for 10 years, so they're probably around 25 or 26. They need to find husbands to provide for them and to protect them. That's just how it worked in this culture. I'm not trying to be a chauvinistic pig. Um, they, that, I, I wanted to notice actually how often the word husband occurs in these next verses. All right? It's like starving people talking about food. Right? And where is God in all this? The ultimate protector and provider. To Naomi's thinking, it's God's fault that this has happened. He's to blame. God can't be relied upon. Husbands are what's called for in this desperate situation. So Naomi tells her daughters-in-law to go back to their mother's home and pronounces a blessing on them. Verse 8b. May the Lord, Yahweh, show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead and to me. May the Lord, Yahweh, grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. But the young women refused to go. 9b, then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Naomi's appeal to her daughters-in-law is very logical. Yahweh is the cause of all of her hardships. Yahweh has raised his hand against her. Naomi feels she is the target of Yahweh's overwhelming wrath and power. There's a big bullseye on her back. And so that hope for a, a better future is certainly not to be found with her. Things are far worse for her than with them. For these two young widows to stick it out with her is just to doom them. The fate that she is suffering is directly from the hand of the God of Israel. Why should they voluntarily get caught up in the crossfire, right? They ought to only shun her and escape all the misfortunes that Yahweh is pouring down on the mother-in-law's head. Otherwise, they're going to be just like the sailors in the story of Jonah. Naomi's built an airtight case 
what better argument is possible to make a return to Moab sound attractive? And of course, Yahweh is not out to get her, as future events will show. All this hardship is leading to the birth of Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal salvation, all of it. Naomi's bitterness against God is sinfully unjust and without cause. Even if the outcome were not the birth of Jesus Christ, her bitterness is still unjust and sinful. But Orpah, her daughter-in-law, she's, she's convinced. And she takes the sensible track and returns to her people and her gods. And that action then serves to heighten Ruth's response. Ruth now clings to Naomi. Verse 14. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. We heard that this morning in our Sunday school class. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, Yahweh, she takes his name, May Yahweh deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Ruth's faith in this situation defies human logic and human wisdom. She literally clings to Naomi and swears her commitment in the name of Israel's God. Right? So do you see? Ruth is acknowledging Yahweh as her God in spite of Naomi saying that Yahweh's hand has gone out against her. She swears by Yahweh's name that only death will separate her from Naomi. If she abandons Naomi, may Yahweh kill her. She will never return home, even if Naomi dies. Despite an apparent future of poverty, widowhood, and childlessness, Ruth will stay with Naomi. Do you see the contrast here in faithfulness? Ruth the Moabite is a model of trust in Yahweh's sovereign providence. Naomi, even though she's a covenant child of God by birth, is cocooned in self-absorbed bitterness. There's a huge contrast happening here. And the text is asking all of us, how do I respond to suffering and trials? Selfless trust in God's sovereign providence or self-absorbed bitterness? And don't forget, Ruth's life hasn't been a bowl of cherries either. She's lost her husband. She's an infertile Moabite widow, yet she's prepared to swear a death oath in the name of Yahweh that she will never leave this old woman's side. Ruth stands alone. She possesses nothing. God hasn't called her like he's called Abraham. 
God hasn't promised her blessing. No human being has come to her aid. She knows, she knows that her decision will most likely lead to a life of great, great hardship. She's broken with her family, her country, and her gods. A young woman has committed her life, herself, to the life of an old woman, rather than search for a husband. One female has chosen another female in a world where life depends upon men. That is a radical decision. Ruth's trust in God is glorious. Her priorities aren't shaped by the priorities of her culture, but rather on selfless denial and trust in Yahweh. Brothers and sisters, we can learn much from this woman. Point three. Bitterness expressed, yet God is sovereign. Naomi arrives in Bethlehem with Ruth. I'm from a small town of 5,000 people, Gananoque, and when you speak in Gananoque of the local boy who makes good, you're speaking of Alan McCulley. Al McCulley played in the NHL for the Toronto Maple Leafs, the San Jose Sharks, and the LA Kings. I went through high school with Al. Uh, we were never close friends, but we had a number of classes together, and, and he was a very humble guy. Um, I never once heard him boast about his hockey skills even though at the time, in high school, he was the leading scorer in the OHL. Uh, Al was one of those people who leaves town, becomes very famous, and then comes back to town and is humble enough that everybody can still like him and still be genuinely happy for him, even though he's rich and famous. Al handled success well, which is difficult. It's also difficult to handle failure and hardship well. There are many people, professing Christians too, whose treasure in life consists of the things of this world. That's where their heart is. And so when life takes an unexpected turn and their treasure slips through their fingers, they lay awake at night evaluating their life and feeling depressed and bitter and scared for the future the things that they prioritize above all else, God seems to have forgotten. The last scene of chapter 1 describes the arrival of Naomi and Ruth in Bethlehem and the interaction between the women of Bethlehem and Naomi. Now, this was a culture where you died in the same village in which you were born. That's just the way it was generation after generation. It's been 10 years since anyone's seen Naomi, and there is excited commotion among the women of the town at her return. But where are her husband? Where's her husband? And, and where are her two sons? And why has she returned with a Moabite? Verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? And out comes a torrent of bile. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter, 
because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Yahweh has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. In Hebrew thought, your name was understood to be expressive of, expressive of your character, your being, your personality. Uh, and here, Naomi twice denies the meaning of her name. And she tells the women of Bethlehem that God has afflicted her and brought her back empty and that she is bitter about it. What are we to make of her theology? On a certain level, it's true. Right? The reaches of God's sovereignty are limitless, even over all the evil that transpires in this world. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. But is it ever appropriate to raise our clenched fist to heaven and really give our friends and neighbors and God a blast of our bitter tongue as we make it clear that we doubt God's goodness and love. Never, ever, I don't care what the circumstances are, that is sin. The Bible insists again and again on God's unblemished goodness. So there can never be cause, ever, for bitterness against God. Deuteronomy 32.4 He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Naomi needs to heed that verse. And we need to pray that kind of prayer when we're tempted to call God unjust, a wrongdoer, imperfect somehow in his works. You see, Naomi's pain is real, uh, but her pain and anxiety have sinfully blurred her perception. Like many of Job's speeches, Naomi's anguish, reactive speech to the women of Bethlehem demonstrates one of the unfortunate truths of suffering. In the midst of pain, there is often self-absorption. It's my pain. Her entire complaint is singular in its orientation. My life is bitter. Yahweh brought me back empty. God has pronounced disaster upon me. She has been blinded by her selfishness and sin to the greater plan and purpose of God, which we're going to see unfold over the next three chapters. And the last verse, verse 22, anticipates the means by which Yahweh will provide for these two widows. And with this, we'll close. Verse 22, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And next week, Lord willing, we'll look at what God foreordained to happen during that harvest. Amen.